again. Good morning, everyone. We're in the second week in Biblical Conflict Resolution. You might recognize the title. A lot of you probably do. Get the log out. It comes from the teaching of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Let's read it, shall we? So this is where we get it from. Jesus said, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, but look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, we need to explain this because the conversation about log getting out and all that jazz starts with judgment. And everyone loves to talk about Jesus' words here. It's one of the few things I think about Jesus' ministry that everyone inside the church and outside the church has memorized. Judge not. Judge not. But usually we marshal these words in our cultural context if we want to justify some bad behavior. Interesting example of that this week. Pretty much all the sports pundits agreed that Cam Newton acted like a pretty sore loser after the Super Bowl when he sat down for the post-game interviews. Some were inclined to give the guy a pass. I mean, it's a heartbreaking loss. We know what that's like around here, what a, what a Super Bowl loss feels like. But then two days later, he was interviewed again, and he doubled down in his behavior. He justified it, saying, who are you to say that your way is right? We got all these people condemning, saying this, that, and the third, but what makes your way right? And he went on in the interview basically saying that people should stop making moral assessments about his sportsmanship. That was an interesting response, I thought. Stop evaluating my behavior, basically. Stop evaluating my character. And you can easily hear him alluding to Jesus there, right? Stop judging me. You know, stop condemning me. Now, that's how most people understand Jesus here. Judge not that you will not be judged. That he meant for us to suspend our critical faculties and stop making any discernments between moral good and moral evil between what is right and what is wrong, between good behaviors and bad behaviors, between the helpful and the harmful. Like, that's what Jesus meant when he said, judge not. But is that what he really meant? Sort of an implicit moral relativism, which Cam is pulling out there, right? Well, what's to say your way is right and my way is right? No, that's not what Jesus meant. We can say that without any doubt whatsoever because of the other things he said in the same context in the same sermon. In fact, just four verses later, you look at this. And he says at the end of this conversation, if you see clearly, then you can help your brother with a blind spot in their life. Then you can make an assessment. Another word for assessment is a judgment. You can make an assessment of a failing in their life, and you can actually help them overcome it and take it out of their life. Look again what he says. When you see clearly, you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, clearly, what Jesus is forbidding is not the critique of beliefs or behavior but rather he is forbidding the premature and improper correction that's done in a spirit of self-righteousness. That's what he's forbidding here, clearly. Let me say that again because it's so important that we understand him properly. Jesus is not forbidding the critique of beliefs or behaviors. No, he's forbidding a premature and improper critique based on a spirit of self-righteousness. That's what he's forbidding. When you see a speck of sin, a misbehavior, a character malformation in your brother's life, which is creating conflict, and all sin separates, it always creates conflict, the Bible says you've got to do something. Don't just passively sit back and say, to each his own. You're supposed to act, but you're supposed to act properly. 
when you see a speck in your brother's eye, quick, what's the first thing you should focus on? Jesus said, the log in your own eye. That's the first action that you're supposed to take. I mean, the metaphor is just beautiful and powerful, and it's also a reminder that Jesus is funny. There's so many things that Jesus said that were deeply humorous in Aramaic culture. Camel through an eye of a needle, the people would have been rolling. They really would have been laughing out loud about that one. A lot of stuff gets lost in translation. This one kind of comes through, right? This one kind of comes through. You imagine an eye doctor with a pair of tweezers trying to pull a fleck of sawdust out of your eye. Meanwhile, there's a two-by-four sticking out of it. Uh, one sec here. I, oh, sorry about that. I just got to get in a little closer there. and I, It's really funny and powerful. It's a picture of someone who's really focused on your problems, but they're totally clueless about their own problems. So this is the critical second G in biblical conflict resolution. Let's get it right, and let's also get it in sequence, friends. Let's get it in sequence. See, it comes after the first G, which we talked about last week. If you missed it, we talked about getting God involved in conflict. And it's a natural thing to flow out of that. Because when you bring God, it, God into conflict, when you begin to trust God in the, in the chaos of relational disruption, then God, by his presence in your life, begins to shine the light on stuff that's going on in you, stuff that may be broken in you. So it comes after that, but it becomes before the third G, which we'll talk about next week, gently restore, because before you can take that speck out of your sister's eye and confront her, first you have to see the log in your own eye and take it out so that you can see clearly to do that confrontation well. It stands no chance unless you do this first. So Jesus isn't saying in this passage that you can never acknowledge that your brother contributed to conflict. What he is saying is that you always, always, always ask, what did I contribute first? You always do that. That's what he's saying. So that's why Jesus forbids us from judging with a self-righteous spirit. Such a judgment is improper because it is inherently bad because it is premature. That it is, it is taking place before a self-assessment has taken place first. And let me tell you, friends, if that doesn't happen, you know that peace talk you have planned, don't expect it to go well. If it doesn't happen, if this doesn't happen first, you know that little issue you want to talk to your boss about? Yeah, you're going to put that one into the ditch. If this doesn't happen first, you know that marriage summit you were planning to have? A little private conversation with your wife wearing what you were going to bring together or bring to, to her mind just a little, little tiny little character flaw that you've seen? That's going to go thermonuclear unless you do this first. That's why this has to happen where it happens in biblical conflict. It's like this young couple who moved into a new neighborhood. And first, uh, first morning that they're there, they're sitting down at their kitchen table, they're eating breakfast, and the wife looks through the window and she sees a neighbor hanging the wash outside. The laundry's not clean, she says. Someone doesn't know how to wash correctly. What a slop. Her husband didn't say much, but over a month, his wife kept grousing every morning when she would see dirty laundry hanging, uh, and their neighbor hanging the dirty laundry outside. And finally, one day, the wife was surprised to see nice, clean wash being hung on the line. And she turns to her husband and says, wow, finally, because she learned how to do laundry. I wonder who fixed her. And the husband said, well, actually, I got up early this morning and cleaned our windows. Think about it for a second, it'll come to you. Now, think about that. 
A person who sees the blame in everybody else doesn't see any blame in themselves. Jesus has a word for that person. What's the word? What's the word? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. It says a person looking at someone else's faults through the faulty, smudgy lenses of their own fallenness, of their own brokenness, of their own contributions. And of course that's going to cloud how you're looking at their issues. Of course that's going to cloud the way in which you assess, that is the way you judge their misbehavior. Of course. You've got to clean your own windows first. You've got to clean your own windows first. But you might say, well, Rick, I've been victimized. Listen, I'm going to tell it to you straight. There is a part that you can own in every person. There's something you did. There's something you brought to the table. Trust me in this. Might be a 10% piece. Might be a 90% piece. Something you brought to relational breakdown. You say, no, Rick. I mean, I, I was standing there, and I was an innocent bystander, and bam, I was overrun by someone else's sin. Well, listen, I, that happens. Surely, that does happen. We get victim, victimized, but then what happens once we've been victimized? Then often, what happens is we fall off the slippery slope of conflict, which we talked about last week, to the left or to the right, in either peace-breaking responses or peace-faking responses. And then that's your contribution. And so we will find ourselves in the middle of conflict, and we lash out in anger. We'll find ourselves victimized, and we then judge our opponent with a critical and fault-finding spirit, or we'll grow passive-aggressive. That's my favorite. You know, I'm so above conflict, but mm, I'll stab you under the table or freeze you out. Or we punish overtly, or, or, or we withhold forgiveness. That's a good one. So yeah, you might have been victimized, but then we do all of these things as our response. And if Jesus was clear about one thing, AC3, he was clear, you got to forgive. You got to forgive. And some of, some of you, what you are bringing to conflict is the lingering spirit of unforgiveness. And you have got to own that. The log in your eye. And you're not seeing it. Because all you're focused on is how you were hurt. So while we're sitting here talking about um, judgment and the Sermon on the Mount, let's go ahead a few verses and look at Jesus talking about another famous thing that almost everybody inside the church and outside has memorized. Verse 12 of chapter 7. Therefore, he said, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. In other words, this summarizes the entire moral teaching of the Bible. That's what he said. Now, we have a name for this. What, what, what do we call this in the vernacular? This is Jesus' golden rule, right? This is the golden rule. And it is in the context, maybe you never knew this, of the judging piece that we just read from verses 1 through 5. It's in the same context as the judging part. So Jesus basically saying, be as critical of others as you want them to be with you. In fact, he says that directly. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. How critical do you want them to be with you? What sort of benchmarks do you want them to use when they judge you? When you're judged, when you're assessed, when your moral character is evaluated, how do you want that to go down? I don't know about you, but here's how I want it to go down. I want people to be generous with me. I want people to be gracious with me. I want people to overlook some things because of love. That's just how I want it to be for me. That's how I want to be judged. Now, don't get me wrong. I want confrontation. I want the truth. I do. I mean, I don't like it, but I want it, and you should want it too. I mean, there's a truth speak, 
speaking peace. And we're going to talk all about it next week. You should want this, and you should want it in close and intimate community. You should want this from trusted friends. The Bible says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, Proverbs 27, verse 6, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And how many of you have experienced that? Where the person who really loved you told you the truth. The person who really didn't care about you at all flattered you, complimented you, and eventually dropped you. You want this. You want truth. You want confrontation. You want it in love. You want, and some of you, you're going to find this only in intimate Christian community. And some of you, maybe because the church has wounded you, or because of past wounds, or relational development in the home that you grew up in, you come right up to the edge of being known in the body of Christ, and you stop right there. You say, no, no further. Because you're worried. Why are you worried? You're worried about getting hurt again. You're worried that someone's going to confront you on something. You're, you're going to be judged. Can I just be really honest with you about this? We should be okay that we judge one another if we do it right. A judgment is just an assessment, right? It's just an evaluation. Judgmentalism is something else. It's the thing Jesus forbids. It's to judge with a fault-finding or critical or self-righteous spirit. That you shouldn't want. No. But every single one of us should be able to come to a point where we say, I want to be known. I just, I want the truth spoken in my life. I'm going to develop the kind of trusting relationships where I could actually receive it. And I could give it. And that's community. You'll find it in small groups. You'll find it in one-on-one relationships. You'll find it as you step into the, out from the shadows and into being known and being vulnerable in Christian community. But that truth speaking has to be done right. It has to be done well. It has to be done well. So, um, so friends, um, this is how most of our conflict uh, basically comes from. Uh, it comes from forgetting this. It comes from forgetting the golden rule. So think about this for a second. Ask yourself some hard questions. Would I want someone uh, else to treat me the way that I've been treated? Or the way I'm treating others? Would I want that? Think about this. Think about a specific situation that you're in. How would I feel if people found out, or, or if, people, if I found out, that people were saying about me what I've been saying about her to the exact same kinds of people in the exact same context, exact same words? How would I feel? Oh, I might have forgot the golden rule there. I might have forgot that. Think about all the conflict that comes on us, friends, because we forget the golden rule. How would I... If our positions were reversed, how would I feel if he used the language that I used? Same words. I think I might have forgot the golden rule there. What if someone broke a contract the way you want to for the exact same reasons that you want to? Would you feel that they were justified? Or maybe would you go, hmm, I don't feel they have the right. Think about that. If your spouse is loved the way you're you're uh, loving them. Would they, would they feel love? Would they feel love? You begin to get the log out, friends, and you begin to apply the golden rule. You start realizing that the, the forgetting of the golden rule is the source of almost all your conflict. But one thing more. Applying the golden rule will usually lead to the golden result. You say, what? You heard of the golden rule. What's the golden result? Thing I read in Peacemaker this week. Ken Sandy summarized the golden rule like this. That's... Treat others the way you want to be treated. The golden result is that people will usually treat you the way you treat them. 
And that's, that's experientially true. I mean, you just, you'll, you're going to find that out everywhere you go. So you lead the way with blame and accusation and pointing the finger of condemnation. You, you, listen. You, you know, getting people to focus on their issue and their blame. Boy, it's going to come back on you. They're going to do the exact same to you. Well, you. Well, what about you? What about you? Conversely, you lead the way with, I was wrong there. And it's not always going to happen. Not always. But a lot of the time, what you're going to get back is, no, no, I was wrong. I was wrong. That's the golden result. So Jesus tells us to get the log out, not, not uh, because he knows that most people are going to want to skip this piece. You're going to want to just get right to either hiding from the conflict or mowing somebody down and making sure they know that there was a problem. So that's why he gets you to back up and do this self-introspective step first. And he underlines it because he knows it's like super hard. And why is it super hard? Well, in part because among the other logs that we carry, we also presume that we carry less fault than somebody else in conflict. But here's the bigger thing. I think it's because we dislike confessing. And why do we like confessing? Because it makes us feel vulnerable. Are you with me? Confessing makes you feel vulnerable. Because it's like handing someone a stick. Right? Because you're basically saying, before God and everybody, I was wrong, I did this wrong, and now that's on, it's on the record, Your Honor. Permanently on the record. Like pictures of my hair. Is permanently on the record. So it's like you're handing them a stick. So next time a conflict comes down the pipe, they can pull it out if they want. Well, you and I agree to don't try to deny it because you told me that you knew that you were wrong when you had this attitude and you had this tendency and stick beat you over the head with it. That's why we don't want to confess. That's why we're reticent to get the log out of our own eye because we're so, we feel so vulnerable when we do that. Well, I have an antidote for you. It's called Christianity. Yeah. The gospel is the antidote to the vulnerability that we feel in confession. Let me uh, spell it out for you. Psalm chapter 130, verse 3 and 4 says, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could ever survive? In other words, if you judged me according to my actual behaviors and what you see, then who could stand on judgment day? Nobody. But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Now listen, if you're investigating faith today, I'm really glad that you're here. Someone might have brought you and they said, I think you'll really like my church, or maybe you found us on the web. I'm really, I'm super glad that you're here. But maybe you've never thought about the gospel before. You've never like thought, what is the essential message of Christianity? Understand, here's where it begins. We've been talking about judgment. It begins right here. God judges you perfectly. He doesn't judge you like your neighbor, like imperfectly or with a fault-finding or critical spirit. He doesn't judge you um, with a... Uh, with blinders on. He just judges you perfectly. He understands you. And he gets it. And he understands that sometimes while you're sort of pressing your rights, that you know and he knows you're in the wrong. You can be legally right and morally wrong. You know that, right? You can be legally right and morally wrong. That, that happens all day long. You can sue someone and win a big pile of money and you can be wrong. You can be wrong the whole way through. You can morally wrong. So God sees that. He sees all that stuff. He sees the stuff you don't want your opponent to see because it'll ruin your negotiation leverage. God sees that. And that ought to make you afraid. I mean, really, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying, like, God's the judge of the universe. He holds your immortal soul 
right here. And he sees all that. Like, it's all like there. You know, the varnish that you put on, you know, the way you can snow your opponent and put yourself in just the right light. I mean, that, that, that's not fooling anybody. That's not fooling God. That might be fooling some people. It fool me. I mean, I'm looking out here at the most handsome group of people I've ever seen. But God sees everything. He sees it all. It's kind of terrifying. And yet, what does the psalmist say? If you, if you handled us exactly the way we deserve, no one stands. No one stands. But with you, there is forgiveness. What God has decided to do is to not judge us as our sins deserve. This is the essential message of Christianity. Right through Christ, the sacrificial lamb, understand something. God has made absolution for you. God's paid the debt. He served the time. He covered it over. He balanced the checkbook. Have you ever stopped and understood that? Have you ever opened up your heart and just let that inside? Have you ever looked at the cross and let the tears flow in your own eyes as you see what God did to cover? I mean, it's awesome and beautiful and grace from start to finish. Have you ever understood what, what the cross is? The cross is the place that judgment meets mercy, and mercy triumphs for you. Here's how the Apostle Paul will put it, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Next verse. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous, not guilty. That's what that means. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Now, how should that affect you in peacemaking? It means, my dear friend, that fundamentally you are safe. And it is safe for you to get the log out. It's safe for you to admit that you fall short. Why is it safe for you? Because after confession, God has promised to forgive you. To wipe your slate clean, he declares you Righteous, The gavel comes down, not guilty, and it's spoken over your soul. Who says this? God says this. Understand who God is. God is the judge. God is the judge of the entire universe, and he's the one who declares you not guilty. God says, I'm in your corner. You understand? I'm for you. Now, if God is for you in this gracious, unbelievable way, and does it matter nearly so much who's against you? Who your opponent is, who they, what they think of you, what they're going to do with your confession tomorrow. Does that matter nearly as much? Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 10, all they can do is kill you. <laughs> I mean, what can they do? What can they do to you? Worst case scenario, I guess they could kill you. But God holds your soul. So if your soul is safe, then you are safe, and it doesn't matter what else can happen. That's the way he wants Christians to think. He wants them to be fearless. And it takes a fearless person to get the log out. And you can be fearless because of grace. It's just okay to come real, come, come into the clear, and to get real because God will heal you. That's the permission he's been looking for, to offer you the declaration over your life. Not guilty. Now, friends, now you can do it to someone else. You do it with God, you 
saved, now you can do it with someone else. You can get real. You can confess. You just can't. But it has to be a right confession. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time. It has to be a right confession. And you say, well, what's a wrong confession? Well, just look at your four-year-old. Any parents in the room? If you're raising more than one kid and you smash them together, they wound one another. They just do physically, emotionally, in every way. They wound each other. And then you inevitably, you get to the place where you ask the one to apologize to the other. And how does that go? Say sorry to your brother. Sorry. 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 Say sorry. No, no, no. You're not saying it right. You're supposed to mean it from your heart. I mean, it's amazing how many times we can go through this with our kids. And you can't manufacture contrition. You just can't. All you can do is expose it when it's not there. Sorry, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. That's not a real confession. And so understand something, friends. There's a biblical confession. There's, a la- there's layers to a beautiful coming into the light that you're supposed to do when you get the log out. And it kind of is uh, summarized in Ken Sandy's book, Seven A's of a Biblical Confession. I'll address them quickly, and I hope most of you stay extended because we'll really dive into these and kind of pull out all the subtlety here. Number one, address everyone involved. Some people think, hey, I'm good with God. You know, they pull all this gospel stuff I just said, hey, I'm good with God. Doesn't matter about you. I don't throw you under the bus. I don't care how you feel. I'm good with God. Uh Uh-uh. Address everyone involved. And we'll talk about when to go public with certain wrongs, but understand that we need to address the people who are affected. Number two, avoid weasel words. Okay, so we've all experienced a really lousy confession, right? How many of you heard a lousy confession? There's been a lot of them. And most of the time, it's on TV, and it's usually with a politician or a Hollywood star or, or a sports guy, right? And they've been caught in another scandal, and now a microphone's been jammed in their face, and they're confessing to the public. And you hear the confession, and you don't know exactly why there's a problem, but at the end, you feel icky, like just somehow you got made to be bad. You're bad. They're confessing their sin, but you're bad. Huh. And you're going, that just feels wrong somehow. Why? It's because they use the weasel word. You say, what are weasel words in confession? Here they are. Are you ready? If, but, maybe, perhaps. And as soon as those are inserted into a confession, it essentially nullifies, voids the confession. Let me give you a good example. I'm sorry if I've done something to hurt you. A sports, you know, personality will say, I'm sorry if you were offended by my actions on the field on Sunday. I'm sorry if you were, if you were offended. What a, what a weasel word. Why is it a weasel word? Because you're squirming out of the blame of it by saying, essentially, you're the problem. If you're so touchy that you were offended, I'm, I guess I'm sorry then because you're such a weak person. That's exactly how the confession comes across. You just suddenly got blamed. You're, they're confessing, but you're the one who feels guilty. It's a weasel word. Let me give you another one. I was wrong to do that, but you're so mean. So the but interrogative essentially effectively nullifies everything that came before it. You can say this beautiful confession. I'm really sorry what I did, and I know it caused a lot of damage. But erase. Just hit delete on everything you just said, and then the next thing is the only thing they're going to hear. But you're so mean but I I had a bad day, but I was raised wrong. Whatever. Whatever. Here's what we learned. In a biblical confession, you confess, you confess without conditions. Keep moving. 
Number three, you admit specifically. And the more detailed you make the confession, the better. I got a story to share about this. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But admit specifically, not these generic, I guess we've got a problem and I'm sorry that we, we have issues. Well, what issues? Admit specifically. Then fourth, apologize. This is the feelings part of the confession. You empathize. It's the expression of sorrow. Like you're actually ad adopting a position of understanding that there's a wound that you caused. And then number five is accept the consequences. This might be the most important part of a biblical confession because this is repentance, right? It, repentance means a change of mind. Change of mind leads to change behavior. No change behavior. Basically, um, what you're saying is, um, I don't know what I did to uh, uh, break the trust in this relationship. Accepting the consequence means you realize that trust got broken and you recognize that there'll be a healing process that will ensue. Sometimes that involves restitution. Sometimes that involves time. Sometimes that involves you doing um, some retrust-building exercises. And that, of course, leads to altering your behavior, which means you're committing to not do the thing that you did to um, wound the relationship. And finally, ask for forgiveness, which is don't assume. Be bold and finally just say, once a, a beautiful confession has been made, period, end of story, no excuses, will you forgive me? And now the ball peacemaking is in their court. So there they are, seven G's, or seven A's of biblical confession. Now let me take this home with a story. So I was playing basketball at the Y, which is my habit, I do twice a week, and um, this is last month I was, we were involved in a tight game, and it was really intense and very competitive, and, and um, this other team, the, the other team breaks out in a fast break, I'm the only guy in, in rough position, I'm, I'm, I'm backpedaling on D, trying to stop this, when the ball carrier... I'm the last guy he's got to beat. He basically tries to do a nasty crossover dribble at full speed. And it was a really good move. And if he gets around me, it's an easy layup, and they win. And I said, it's really intense, very competitive. So I did, you know, what any really good, highly trained basketball defender would do to stop a wicked crossover. I fouled him. I, I totally fouled him. I, I just, I hacked. I, I totally hacked the guy. I was trying to live up to the motto at the Y, which is no blood, no foul. All right, so I was sort of shocked when right after that, I was like, well, I'm all handsy and just reaching and stopping. I'm just trying to stop the play. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm sort of shocked and taken aback when he picks up the ball with a look of real fury on his face. He shoves me with the ball. And I resisted the temptation to say, dude, that's traveling. <laughs> but seriously, I'm like really taken aback. Instant rage right? But that's when it went really sideways. See, the other guys at the Y, they know, they know me, they know kind of what I do, they know I'm a pastor, so I get nicknames, I'm called Preach, I'm called Rev, that sort of stuff. So, when this player came after me, before I could even try to talk him down, that was my plan, it's like, whoa, 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 I was going to try to talk him down. One of my teammates reacted, and I don't know what he was thinking, I, I think he might have been thinking, oh man, Preacher Boy, oh, this guy is as prepared to fight as Gandhi. I mean, he gets decked, he's going to fall like a Walmart tent. So my teammate, on my behalf, steps into the fray and gives my opponent a big shove to get him out of my face. Well, he shoves him right back, and loud swearing ensues between the two of them, not me. Okay, and, and people's mother's reputations are now have been brought into the conversation. And, and, and then someone else jumped in like literally now we got a third person into the fray and now it comes this close to blows like seriously this cock okay it comes this close to blows 
thank God no one swung. By the time it had simmered down to a medium boil, the game had broken up, guys walked off disgusted with each other, with themselves, whatever, just mad, conflict. And just broke up. And that's what conflict does. Sin separates. Next week, I come to the wide, and I talk to the teammate who had defended me. And he kind of begins a bit of a speech. He goes on and on about what a jerk that other guy was. And what a baby he was. And how out of control he was. And how classless he was. And he peppered his speech with a lot of F-bombs. And I wondered what his definition of class was. <laughs> but he was just really all about how that guy was all to blame. And I appreciated that he wanted to look out for me. And suddenly I found myself thinking, yeah. The more he's talking, I'm thinking he was out of control. He was. He's totally out of control. He way overreacted. I mean, it's the why, for goodness sake. It's not like NBA Junior. You know, this guy is totally immature response to... To tough play. I mean, come on. Now there's a rock in my gut as I'm thinking about that other guy. Because he's going to come back. He's a regular. He plays just pickup games. I'm going to have to play on his team at some point in the future. I'm thinking, oh, great. And I've just got a rock in my gut. I don't want to see him. I just want to chide him or I want to avoid him. Peace breaking, peace making. Those are the responses in my soul. And that's what unresolved conflict does. It just disrupts relationships. But as the indignation is rising in my soul, another voice breaks in. It is the Holy Spirit, for he says, Hey, you fouled the guy. Like hard. Like it was a hard foul. It was a bad foul. It was a classless foul. It wasn't about good sportsmanship. It was vicious. It was about winning a game. At the Y. At the Y. And I knew at that moment, I got to approach this. I'm, I'm a conflict avoider. I'm a peace faker. I, I got to deal with this. And so I committed then, all right, God, I'm going to do that. So sure enough, two days later, there's my opponent, and he's warming up before a game. And I made a beeline to him because I knew if I didn't just do it right then, I was going to chicken out. So he looks, sees me coming towards him, a little unsure, but I just came right, right out, and I just said, hey, Pedro, I wanted to tell you, uh, look, I understand why you got mad. I really fouled you last week. I mean, that was more than just a hard foul. It was a cheap foul. It was flagrant. It was way out of line. And I just want to tell you that I'm sorry. I'm going to strike out my team. And guess what? Well, I didn't even have that out of my mouth before Pedro grabbed my hand, pulled me into an embrace, and he said, no, man, no, man. I was out of line. I should have never come after you like that. I don't know what came over me. It's crazy. It's the why. <laughs> basketball, he says, we're good. We're good. Here we are. Here we are. We're good. That just opened up a really cool conversation, by the way. And I knew in that moment I was forgiven. And I was free of it. When that could have been a knot in my stomach for the rest of my days playing basketball for why? And every time that guy shows up, I'm like, and it's avoidance, simmering, aggression, frustration, resentment. God wanted me to release it so I could walk in peace making. I was living in the golden resolve. I lived in the golden resolve. For confession breaks grace free into your life. From God and into your opponent. God, may we be among those courageous souls who have found peace with you. And so being safe in your embrace can get real with anybody else 
be honest about ways in which we contribute to, to broken relationships. And may, for the glory of God, we break free into our lives as peacemakers in our marriages, with our children, with our co-workers, and with our friends, and yes, even where we play basketball. Lord, may we be peacemakers because we confer a blessing on them. I pray this in the name of the Prince of Peace.